Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Matthew 28 and verse 18. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're welcome. We're delighted you're here. We're in the middle of a short topical series of exegetical sermons. Normally, we work our way through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. But in the summer, because so many of our congregation are away, hither, thither, and yon, we tend to do a more standalone topical series. Last year, we did the fear of God, and this year, we're doing the heart of God, um, the who God is, what God is like at the core of His being. And this morning, we come to consider the great doctrine of the Trinity. And if ever we feel ourselves out of our depth in our contemplation of God, it's here. God is one, but He is also three. And so, make sure you've got plenty of coffee on board. This is not a time to be decaffeinated. Um, and if you are visiting, we're going to go into some deep waters this morning, as Augustine famously said. I can see the depths. I just can't see the bottom. And uh, a lot of the bread's going to be on the top shelf this morning. Uh, just we're talking about God after all. If it was easy, we'd be talking about the wrong God. Um, and uh, so brace yourself for impact. Uh, John Calvin famously observed, he's quoting here Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a, one of the Cappadocian fathers in the early church. He said, I cannot think of the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three, nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the glory of the one. And Calvin said about that passage, it vastly delights me, that thought. I cannot think of the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three, and I cannot think of the three without immediately being brought back to the glory of the one. It vastly delights me, Calvin says. And if you remember that this morning, God is one, God is three, and God is three, and God is one, and we can never allow the oneness of God to violate the threeness of God, and you can never allow the threeness of God to violate the oneness of God, is the heart and soul of what we're saying this morning. Let's read together the Word of God from Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. So, we come this morning to the doctrine of the Trinity, and as we do, we need to remember to stop. We're not, we've not come here just simply to contemplate, to engage in an act of intellectual gymnastics. We stand on holy ground, and the purpose of our study is not just to think, it must always be to worship. The Trinity isn't just a matter to ponder, one author said. It is the heart of our Christian faith. 
And it's immensely practical. Here, Jesus is giving the church His marching orders, and those marching orders are unashamedly Trinitarian. Going, therefore, He says in the Greek, make disciples. The key verb is make disciples. And make disciples involves baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's a practical subject then at the heart and soul of the church's identity. Now, you might say to me, why do we have to be so precise about our theology? You know, some people balk at the idea of using words like Trinity, um, because it's a word that's not found in the Bible, right? And the answer to that is simple. When we explain the Bible, we have to use words that aren't found in the Bible. Otherwise, we'd be left speaking only Greek and Hebrew, and you wouldn't understand anything that I'm saying this morning, right? But also, you've got to remember that the most dangerous heretics in the history of the Christian church were always men, and to some extent women, who believed every word in the Bible. And they loved to hold the debate in the Bible, and the church had to find words that were not found in the Bible, but words that that summarize the teaching of the Bible in order to defend the church against these heretics, men like Arius, who would love to say, um, the Father is greater than I am. He quote about Jesus. And look, Christ can't be equal with God, he would say, and he would, be, he would debate on those matters. And yet the early church would come together, and they would talk to men like Arius, and they would say, well, hold on a second. The Bible teaches three very distinct things about God. First of all, that God is one. That's the heart and soul of the Jewish faith. Uh, Every morning, the Jewish young man will stand up, and he will say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elocheinu Adonai Echad, which is Hebrew, for hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? The oneness of God, so God is one. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. There's a oneness there. Yet the Bible also speaks of Jesus as clearly divine. How can He be divine and the Father be divine? What do you mean He speaks of Jesus as divine? Well, Jesus um, is called names only God should be called. He's called names like Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. We'll see later on, but in John 1.1, John says, And and God was the Word. What God is, the Word is. What the Word is, God is. He's called names only God should be called. He also does things, Jesus does, that only God can do. He makes the universe. He rules the universe, upholding it by the Word of His power. He judges the thoughts and minds of men, which is a work proper to God and God alone. Also, He existed when only God existed. He was there in the beginning, when everything else had a beginning. He is the way only God can be. In this very passage, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. An angel can't be with all of God's people everywhere at all times, but somehow Christ can be. He's omnipresent, one of the divine attributes. 
and he, he receives worship only God should receive. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, when he sees the risen Christ. Literally in the Greek, the Lord of me and the God of me. And so you have witnesses who say there's no definite article over God and Jesus. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. The God of me, Thomas says. And Christ doesn't say, hold on a second, you're going too far, Thomas. Or the angels in heaven, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. Those are all things only God should be given, but they're given to Christ unapologetically. So God is one, but Jesus is clearly divine. And the Holy Spirit as well is, is spoken of, but He's not merely a force. He's not merely God in action. He's a person in His own right, and if, if you like, an independent personality, dependent within the Godhead. But He's, he's a separate personality. To sin against the Spirit is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is the most serious sin imaginable, Jesus says. He's clearly a spirit. We'll come back to that later in our message. So, God is one, but yet the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So, how can that be? And so, the early church found this word trinity, the triunity of God, to describe this reality, and it's, it's vital. It's vital for our worship. Are we only to worship the Father, or are we to worship the Father and the Son and the Spirit? And it's vital if we are to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. We worship each of the persons of the Godhead. It's vital also for our redemption. As I've said many times from this pulpit, if we are to be saved, there's a tremendous conundrum. Our Savior must be human. He must be as small as a man. He must have a body to be broken and blood to be shed. If man has sinned, man must pay the price. But he must also be God, because the price that is to be paid is as big as God and as long as eternity. Who can absorb the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable wrath of God? Only one as big as God can absorb infinite wrath and make it zero. So, he must be as small as a man and as big as God. And who can that be? Jesus. And so, we're saying if Jesus is not God, you are not saved this morning, and your Christian faith is in vain. William Perkins, the Puritan, said, it's not sufficient to, to salvation to have a vague or unbiblical view of God. To be saved, we must hold and believe that God the Father is our Father, the Son is our Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier and Comforter. Now, we'll come back more about that later in the sermon this morning. So, the Trinity matters, and so we're going to work through this text together this morning under a number of phrases. And uh, listen to me, and we'll, I'll try and make this as simple as possible, but it's like that examination question, define God and give three examples. Well, like, <laughs> where do you start? So, um, listen, and we'll, I'll try and walk this through with you. And um, if, if I see your brain dripping out of your ears, I'll stop and try harder. So, the first phrase is 
personal doubt, when you look at this text of Matthew 28, the first thing we see, sorry, is numerical unity. Numerical unity. The name. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, at least to me, that he doesn't say into the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but the name. The name singular. Now, that's interesting. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all united under the rubric of the title, the name. Now, for a non-Jew, that might not mean much to you this morning, but for a Jew, it meant everything. In the Old Testament, God was very often summarized by the title, the name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The name, Hashem in the Hebrew. Ha is the, and Shem is name. The Hashem. It was the unutterable name of God Himself. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe, right? In, in Leviticus 24, there's an interesting account of this Israelite woman's son whose father was an Egyptian. And he goes out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed Hashem. That's all it says. He blasphemed the name, and he's put to death for it. Blasphemed the name, the name. And so, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all subsumed in this great commission under the rubric of the singular name, numerical unity. And so, what we, the first thing you've got to see when you think of the Trinity is that the actual, that God Himself is does not consist in parts. It's not like a pizza you can cut up into three distinct parts. The divine essence is one, and all that is in that essence is God. All that is in God is God. You remember the famous quote by James Dolezal, the oneness of the divine essence. And in that divine essence, there is one mind and one will and one substance. That's important right now. This is where you're going to need to think um, this morning with me. We often think of persons, and we'll get back to what a person is in a second, right? But we think of persons as individually self-conscious thinkers, persons. Um, But we've got to be careful because, properly speaking, There's only one mind in God and one will in God, and that mind and will exists at the level of the divine essence, not the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit each have full access to the mind of God and to the essence of God in their personalities. And that's important because if you think about it, when God the Son becomes a human being, 
He doesn't become a human person. The divine person who has a divine nature, God the Son, takes to himself a human nature with a human spirit and a human mind and a human will and a human body. And all of those things exist at the level of the human nature. And if you get that wrong, you end up falling into an ancient heresy called Nestorianism. And Nestorius was a man who believed that in the person of Jesus Christ, there were two persons, a divine person and a human person, with a divine nature and a human nature. And so, the person who walked about in Galilee wasn't really God's son. He was a human person, Mary's son. And that separates the doings and dyings of Jesus from the person of God's son. And you remember, orthodoxy is there's only one person. There's the God, the Son. You've got a divine nature and a human nature. And on earth, the divine person is, is the one active in his human nature. And that therefore, he's got a human will and a human mind in his human nature, and a divine will and a divine mind in his divine nature. And if you don't keep that very much together, you fall into a heresy. And um, it's complicated. But so, there's the unity of God, the oneness of God, the divine essence is simple and not chopped up into parts. The next thing we see, though, is there is diversity, a personal diversity in the divine essence. That divine essence is shared fully and completely by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As Donald McLeod says, God is one, but He's also more than one. He's more than one. Now, this is where things get complicated, and I'm going to come down. Um, listen and follow me now here a second, right? We think of, we speak of the three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person has full access to the undivided divine essence. Now, you say, what on earth is a person? And we scratch our heads. Augustine actually was kind. He said, we use the word person because if we didn't have the word person, we'd say nothing. And that would be embarrassing. We've got to say something. So, we're going to call them the word person. Now, what is a person? Theologians actually prefer the word subsistence, which is complicated. But it actually is helpful because the word subsistence comes from the ancient Latin term to mean to stand, to stand. You might say within the divine essence, there are three standing subjects. Now, think about that with me for a second. To a certain extent, these standing subjects are self-conscious in their identity, right? So, I get up out of the morning, and I grab my coffee first thing in the morning, and I am conscious that I am Neil. I'm not Catherine. I'm not Hannah. I'm not Aaliyah. And I'm definitely not Baxter, who's my rat terrier. Um, I'm different from them. I'm, I'm a separate person. I'm, I'm self-conscious of who I am. I have my own identity. There's also a sense with a person that I exist in relational community, that, that I have there's other persons I connect to, right? And that's actually very important. Now, this actually will help you. Listen to me now. Everybody brain back on again if you're falling asleep or you're, you're struggling not to lose your mind. Listen, okay? For the Muslims, this is a tremendous problem. The Muslim god Allah is a monad. He exists all by himself as a solitary recluse from all eternity 
to all eternity. He is not defined by relationships. He has no need for relationships, right? And therefore, it is very, very difficult to describe Allah as a God of love, and the Muslims never do, because He's by Himself, no one to give love to, no one to receive love from, so love cannot be part of His being. Am I making sense? Right? That's kind of cold, distant. The Christian God is not like that. He exists in community. He is defined by His relationships. The Father would not be the Father had He not the Son. And the Son wouldn't be the Son were He not the, had he not the Father. And the Holy Spirit of the Father and the Son would not be the Holy Spirit of the Father and the Son did He not have the Father and the Son to be the Spirit of. And so, ultimate reality in the Christian world and life view is not a recluse, not a lonely monad, but a thriving community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with boundless glory and intricacies to delight themselves into all eternity. And that's interesting because we're made in God's image. And it explains that the fact that God is that way helps us understand why we are that way. Like, for example, some of you are going to the beach this week. Would you rather go there by yourself or with your family? Or maybe children, imagine you watched a movie on Friday night with your family, or not your family. Everybody goes out. Mom and dad go out. Your siblings go out. Your friends aren't there. You're by yourself in the house watching a movie. And no one you know has ever seen that movie before, and it's a great movie. It's funny. It's exciting. It's a bit scary. And what's the first thing? As you're watching that movie, what are you constantly thinking? Oh, I wish Sally was here, or, or Brad, or, or Joanne, or Mommy, or Daddy. They'd love this bit of the movie. Because if they were there, when they laughed, their laughter would intensify your laughter. And when they were frightened and sitting on the edge of their seat, their kind of tension would intensify your tension. Because everything in life, all of the best pleasures of life are better enjoyed with other people. And that's not an accident. It reflects not just human nature, it reflects the divine nature, the creator of all things. He's not lonely. He exists in the community of love. And that's why we long for a community of love. And that's important. So, what is a person? It's a self-conscious identity, relational community. It's also personal agency, right? The Father sends the Son, and the Son goes down into Mary's womb. But the Father doesn't go. The Son goes. The Son dies on the cross, not the Father. As He dies on the cross, He offers Himself to God through the Holy Spirit. A distinct person. There's also a measure of legal authority, right? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me by the Father, by inference. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things that I command you. Christ is a commanding legal authority as an individual person in the Godhead. 
And there's a measure also of moral responsibility. When Christ, the person, is in our nature, He ought to behave a certain way. When the devil says, make these stones into bread, he says, no, man shall not live by bread alone. He ought to have said that, and he did. So, a person has all that kind of tied up in it. As I've mined the literature that way this week, those are kind of the five things that come to the fore. Self-conscious identity, relational community, personal agency, legal authority, and moral responsibility. And there are three of those persons in the Godhead, three standing subjects, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the great chair text for this is John chapter 1. Now, in John chapter 1, you only see the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit's not there. That's okay. He's elsewhere in the Bible. He's everywhere in the Bible. But look at John 1 a second for me. John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's beautiful. In its simplicity and its profundity. En arche en halogos. In the beginning was the Word. Kai halogos en proston thaon. And the Word was towards the God. Kai thaos en halogos. And God was the Word. That's literally what it says. Beautiful. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was towards the God, and God was the Word. Leaves no room for the Jehovah Witness malarkey, and the Word was a God. No, um, the Greek says, and God was the Word. And you look at that, and you see a number of things. First of all, as we said earlier on, the Word existed when only God existed. In the beginning, before everything that ever had a beginning had its beginning, Christ was there as the beginning of all beginners, or the beginner of all beginnings. In the beginning was the Word, was the Word. The Word was open-ended existence. And we're told that the Word was with God or towards God, not side by side, shoulder to shoulder, but face to face. Uh, The Father looking at the Son, and the Son looking at the Father, and by inference from other texts, the Holy Spirit looking at the Father and the Son, and (coughs) with no need to look elsewhere to find something more beautiful with which to occupy themselves. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God, or God was the Word. And that's remarkable, right? Because he's just said the Word was towards God. So evidently, whatever he means by God here is God the Father, is to some extent distinct from God the Son, the Word, And yet, in the very next phrase, he says, God was the Word. So, whatever the Word is, God is. Whatever God is, the Word is. And yet, there's more to God than just the Word. And yet, the glory and majesty and essence of God belongs fully to the Word, just as much as it belongs fully to the Father. It's 
mind-blowing. It's a great mystery. McLeod puts it well. The Word was not only God. He was God with God. Christ is unreservedly God, but He's not the totality of God. The Father also is God, and the Spirit is God. These simply cannot be different names for the same person or different faces of the same person. Otherwise, we could not have the Word with God or the Son sent by God or the Son forsaken by God. Equally, however, they are not different beings, giving us three distinct gods. They are instead three eternal distinctions within the one God, but distinctions of such an intensely personal kind that each loves the other and that together they constitute the Godhead. He's hinting there at there's an early church heresy called Sabellianism, which was God is one person, but he, he wears three different kind of face masks. At one time, he pretends to be the Father, and then the next he's being the Son, and the next he's being the Spirit. But the Bible allows us no such vision of God. There is one divine essence, but in that essence there are three separate but mutually interpenetrating persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at that point, we stop speaking, and we just need to start worshiping. And so, when the Father sent His Son, He didn't just send a little piece of the Godhead. He sent His Son in whom all of the fullness of God dwells. It's incredible. And Jesus, you see, does the kind of things only God can do. In verse 3 of John 1, He says, all things were made. Literally, the Greek says, all things came into being through Him, and without Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, if it had a, if a, if a thing in existence ever had a beginning, everything that ever had a beginning owes its beginning to Jesus, God's Son, which means Christ Himself could never have had a beginning. He was always there. There never was a time when He was not. Who is He in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At His feet we humbly fall. We crown Him, crown Him. Lord of all. Now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, separate persons united in the one God. Now, to understand that, there, there are a number of terms you've got to understand in the Bible. And the first term you've got to understand is the term only begotten. 
What's that word mean? If you look in John's gospel, you should still be there. John 1 verse 18, and the ESV does not help us in its translation of that verse. But again, I'm reading from the Greek here. I'm going to read it literally. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the one who dwells in the bosom of the Father, this one has explained Him, exegeted Him, literally, unpacked Him before our eyes. Now, begetting sounds like origin, and it sounds like a moment in time. And that's why, that's what Iris would say, the Father beget the Son. And there was a time, therefore, when the Son was not. And Orthodox theologians very helpfully said, no, if Jesus is fully God, and He is, then He cannot have a beginning. Because if He had a beginning, then He's not God. And so, the church through the years has always just described the begetting process as something that happens at a personal level. The Father does not give the Son the divine essence, as some theologians say. That would be, that would be to make the Father the fount of the Godhead, and that's not good. But at a personal level, the Son is begotten by the Father, but in such a way that it happened in an eternally complete and necessary moment. Now, think about that. It was eternally complete. There was never a time when the Son was not. There was never a time when the Son began to be begotten and came into existence. There was never a process. There was never an end result. He was always there as the Son in a way that's beyond my capacity to explain. And He's, he's necessarily there as the Son because if He didn't exist, if you could go back billions of years and get to a time when it was just the Father, the Father wouldn't be the Father. And the Son coming into existence wouldn't just change the Son, it would also change the Father into a Father. And we can't have that. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whatever the word begetting means, it, it, it describes the personal relationship of the Father and the Son from all eternity. There was no process. And we use a similar language to describe the Spirit. But the Spirit isn't begotten. That would make Him a second Son. The language we use is spiration or procession, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Now, that also is controversial. The church, the initial Nicene Creed said, the Spirit proceeds only from the Father. Not only, it just says He proceeds from the Father. And later, as the church sharpened its pencil and thought more clearly, it added in the 7th century, 600s, from the Father and the Son. And the, the Eastern Orthodox brothers didn't like that, and they split in 1054, the Great Schism. And the Bible teaches both that the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. John 14, the Father sends the Spirit. But John 20, Jesus breathes the Spirit onto the disciples. And in, in, in Paul's writings in, in Romans 8, Paul describes the Spirit as belonging to the Father. He's the Spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead. But He's also the Spirit of Christ. He belongs to Christ equally. And so it's biblical to speak of the Spirit coming from the Father and the Son. Again, 
in a manner that was eternally complete and necessary. Otherwise, what you'd have in the Spirit was less than God, and less than God is not God. Right? But in terms of the divine essence, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have full possession of that in their own right as persons of the Godhead. The Father doesn't give the divine essence to the Son, and doesn't give the divine essence to the Spirit, but the Father, the Son, and the Spirit possess the totality of the Godhead in and of themselves. Now, there's another important idea to have. So, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, while they're distinct persons, they're so closely connected, as we said at the beginning, you can't think of the Father without also thinking of the Son, and you can't think of the Son without thinking of the Father, and you can't think of the Spirit of the Father and the Son without speaking of the, the, the Father and the Son. And it's a beautiful relationship. It's a divine dance, an interpenetrating community of love. John of Damascus, who's an ancient writer, said this. It's beautiful. The abiding and resting of the persons in one another is not in such a manner that they coalesce or become confused, but rather so that they adhere to one another for they are, they are without interval between them and inseparable, and their mutual indwelling is without confusion. For the Son is the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit, sorry, the Son is in the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and the Father is in the Son and the Spirit, and there is no merging or blending or confusion, and there is one surge and one movement of the three persons, and it's impossible for this to be found in any created nature." So, when you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, as Jesus says, the Father and I are making our home with you with Him, because you can't have the Holy Spirit and not have the Father and the Son with Him in you. It's a beautiful um, relationship of love. Now, you think to yourself, okay, this is like mind-blowing. What's the relevance? Let me give you three quick take-home points, right? First of all, the importance of relationships. As we said earlier on, the Trinity explains why we long for community, why we hate loneliness, why why the recluse is is always a man or a woman who's unraveling in their humanity. We are made for relationships by the maker of all relationships, and He Himself exists in relationship, our relationship of love. Now, sin has shattered that. Sin has made us self-centered. It's the ultimate logic of sin to be inward-focused, to seek to please only ourselves, to be hateful toward others, to view other people as a very simple dynamic. Are they useful to me or useless to me? That is the perspective of the psychopath, but it's not the perspective of God. 
And it should never be the perspective of the human being. Human beings should be loving one another, pouring ourselves out, laying ourselves down, giving ourselves up, serving one another. And as you understand the nature of God, you'll understand more and more the nature of marriage. As a husband lays his life down for his wife, and she lays her life down for him, and there's an economy of love in the home. And parents and children and brothers and sisters loving one another. And, and, and that sin, selfishness, makes, it actually dehumanizes us. Animals tear one another apart, but God never does, and we should never tear one another apart. Love the importance of relationships. The second thing we learn is the importance of balance. You know, human beings, we, our personalities tend to be somewhere between the extrovert, introvert. Introverts like me, um, I'm an introvert. I recharge by myself at home. But I also go out, right? And being, people say, you can't be an introvert, you're a preacher. You know, being a preacher is the best place for introverts. I'm here and you're all over there. Um, my wife's an extrovert. She finds her energy going out and being amongst and, and community and fellowship, right? And there's a balance of that. Of, uh, uh, this is my own thinking, but there's something of that in the Godhead. There's the, the introspection of God in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, towards one another in the unity of the Godhead. But God also reaches out to the world, the Father loving the world, the Son pouring Himself out, coming down to a place where men can get their hands on Him, the Holy Spirit in, inhabiting us with the Godhead. God is, an, is, a, is, an, is an, an out, a God who reaches out to people, and we need to be aware that we don't fall into the trap of only appealing to the baser parts of our nature. Introverts mustn't become reclusive. Extroverts need some time by themselves. There's a, there's, there's a time for both, and we need balance in our personalities. But it's important as we go out that we honor human beings. I've said this before. You go into Starbucks, and the barista is there, and barista is the Italian word for she who presses the button on a cappuccino machine. But she's more than that. She's a person. She's Molly or Jean or Jen or Robert. He as well. You know, there's male and female baristas. But they're there, right? And they're human beings. And we don't just walk up and look at the menu and just say, I want want an Americano extra hot with uh, um, no room for milk, please. No, that's treating them as a thing. They're a person, and we need to look them in the eye and smile at them and call them by their name and acknowledge their personhood. And that's, that's part of being human being. We need to do, we need to be warm, welcoming. When someone comes into the, the, the church, we need to gather, we do this well as a congregation. We gather around them, we welcome them into our midst. We, we bring them into the fellowship. It's amazing, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this interpenetrating community of love where there's knowledge and appreciation and just. And God has, has opened that to the church that in, 
in eternity, we will be invited into that fellowship. And we're, the beginnings of that are happening this morning, of course, but we're invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church in that interpenetrating love for God and for one another. And you meet the Godhead, you meet the Father, and you meet the Son and the Holy Spirit in Him. They're connected. And likewise, when you meet any one Christian, you meet every Christian in Him and every Christ in her. Christ is in every Christian. And therefore, we can't ever afford to hate one another. The devil loves to do that, to come into the church and lead us to hate one another, because they're different than we are. No, there's Christ in every one of us, and every one of us is in Christ, and every one of us is in every one, every, each one of us, as it were, and there's that community of love. And as we remember that, we are united and become more and truly and authentically human and Christian. And then lastly, the importance of service. I need to bring this to a rapid close. But I'm going to read just a quote from McLeod about when Christ washed our feet. Listen to this. In that act of foot washing, Jesus discloses what it meant to be the one from God. He shows that the impulse to service lies at the very heart of the deity. God the Father serves the incarnate Son. He says, honor my Son as you honor me. God the Son serves His sinful people and His Father. Is there not reason to trace the principle right back into the depths of the Trinity? God lives in a fellowship, a fellowship of service where each person is for the other. Of course, there's no need. None is in want. None is deficient. But that is only because each so fully serves the other. The Son is toward the Father. His whole being and strength and love move outwards to the other. That is why in washing feet the Lord is not only acting in full accordance with His hour and in full accordance with His love, but also in full accordance with His nature. He is love, and it is of the very nature of love to be for the other. If I have washed your feet, Jesus says, you also should wash one another's. Now, think about that. At every moment in his earthly life, Jesus can say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. When he washes the, 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 his disciples' feet, dirty, dung-covered feet, smelly feet, he's not just showing you the nature of Christian service. He's showing you the nature of God, who looks at a lost and undone world and doesn't just feel a great feeling but He makes a great sacrifice, and the Father sends His Son out to become sin and die in your place, that we sinners might become sons in the Son, a sacrifice, a costly sacrifice. Later, McLeod says, we want a God whose feet we can wash and whom we can therefore place in our debt so that we can walk into heaven with our heads held high, self-made, self-washed, and self-saved. And God says, no, I have come to wash your feet and to wash your soul, to lay down my life for you. 
not just as a sacrifice, but as an example. And when you see that, what are you to do with your selfishness? What am I to do with my selfishness? It makes us ungodly, ungodlike, and it makes us profoundly subhuman. It dehumanizes us. So, at the table this morning, as we come to the table and Christ serves you, let Him teach you to serve one another. Husbands, serve your wife. Wives, serve your husbands. Children, serve one another in their home. It's not about me. As Stuart Briscoe likes to say about marriage, if I win, we lose. And that principle holds true at every level of the Christian family and at every level of the Christian community. It's not about me. It's about you and God in you. And therefore, the call of the gospel is not just a way of being saved from hell. It's a way to be saved for service and to become authentically human and less and less like the devil and more and more like our Heavenly Father and His beautiful Son and His glorious Holy Spirit. Whom to know is life everlasting. And so Christ says to you this morning, whoever you are, come and let me teach you to serve one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its power, its truth. It's mind-blowing, O God, but it's soul-enriching. Come and feed us and nourish us for Christ's sake. Amen.